You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Congressional Black Caucus Chair Karen Bash joins the Washington Post to discuss reforms to curb police brutality and racial profiling and eliminate qualified immunity with the Justice and Policing Act. Let's listen. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Congresswoman Karen Bass of California is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. And in that role, she is leading the charge to implement unprecedented police reforms to curb police brutality and racial profiling and eliminate qualified immunity as part of the Justice in Policing Act, or as it's going to be renamed next week, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Now the hard part getting these historic changes passed. Congresswoman Karen Bass, so great to see you. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me on. So uh, let's talk about Atlanta and the shooting this weekend of Rayshard Brooks. Shot twice in the back, according to the medical examiner. How does this shooting fit in with that of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville? Well, it was just such a, a tragedy and, yeah. um, you know, just leaves everybody distraught. But, but I will tell you, I mean, the big difference is, is that uh, he clearly engaged in a fight and then he ran and he turned around, at least it looks as though he turned around with his taser. But the question here is, why were the police involved at all? I mean, what he had done was he had fallen asleep in a takeout line. Why did they call the police on him? And when they called the police on him, why did it escalate to the point of, of, of them engaging in a fight? And so you saw the community reaction. It pains me every time I see the violence, but I do think it raises questions about policing, which is one of the things about the bill. The bill hopefully will raise discussions about standards, accountability, accredi accreditation, et cetera. I mean, can we talk about, about training? training? Because sure. I, I don't know, maybe police are trained differently than, say, than the rest of us. I'm sure they are. But it seems common sense that you would go tap on the window and say, hey, hey, buddy, um, are you OK? Or call a tow truck. Why is the how does the bill address police training in, in such a way that it either mandates or recommends that police departments train their, the officers in de-escalation as opposed to what seems to my layperson's mind all, always jumping to some sort of force in dealing with the public? Well, I mean, I think the first thing they were trying to do was establish whether he was under the influence, which if you think about it, I, I'm not even really sure why. They could have just told him to pull over. They could have just said, you know, pull over and call an Uber. A lot of different things could have happened there. But you hit on several points that are included in the bill. So the bill really is an attempt in one way to get at police culture. And so, yes, it does call for training, but it calls for standards, accountability. Why is it that a chokehold is okay in one city and not in another? You know, Jonathan, I had a, a meeting, rather long meeting with the Paternal Order of Police. And they're very supportive of national standards and, in fact, ask for our help because, from their point of view, there are 18,000 police departments around the country, and they have been trying, the Paternal Order of Police, 
have been trying to get the departments to buy into national standards and accreditation, but they've been doing it on a retail basis. So they said, if you come along and you're able to pass this legislation, it will really help us because this is what we've been trying to do all along. Speaking of the Fraternal Order of Police, you know, I'm a, a, a former New York Daily News editorial writer, and you know the, the police unions in New York are powerful. As I assume, the police unions in cities around the country are powerful. Does the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act address any issues related to police contract where accountability um, comes into play? Well, no, it doesn't address the union contracts. It does not. But, you know, you should know uh, the unions are definitely contacting us. They are interested in reform. You know, this is a this is a real critical moment in our country. And I think that they understand that people around the country, 70 percent believe that the protesters have a legitimate reason to protest. People want change. So this is one of these movements in one of these time periods in history where the door is open a little bit and we absolutely have to rush through. People are protesting every day and I feel as though we have got to deliver. And frankly, that was also how I felt when the shooting happened in Atlanta. It's like it makes me feel that we have to work even faster. We have got to deliver. We have to show people that we are serious. This is not just a message bill. This is a bill that we need to pass into law. And I will tell you, right after we introduced it, I heard from many of my Republican colleagues. We're in, we were in discussions over the weekend. Before the weekend, I talked to Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader. You know, we go back to Sacramento days. So there is tremendous interest now, and we have to strike while the iron is hot. Okay, so you touched on, on a lot of things there. When I talked to you last week, for, for a column, you mentioned to me that various aspects of this bill have been sought after, particularly by the Congressional Black Caucus, for right. the last 40 years. Yes. So when the, the, when the bill goes for markup um, in the Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, do you have any indicator of which pieces will come out of committee, or is the goal to get all of it out of committee on Wednesday? This bill will be passed out of committee on Wednesday, all of it, together. Now, I am hoping that some of my Republican colleagues come on board, but frankly, Jonathan, I just think it's a little too soon for them. I think they're trying to sort through things themselves. I would love to say we would have Republican support that fast, but I do think it's going to take them a little time. Now, the, the next week, we will pass it off the floor. And so by then, I'm hoping that that's a little more time and we can garner some Republican support. Tim Scott is introducing his bill on Tuesday. One of my colleagues uh, in the House is introducing not exactly Tim's bill, but a bill that is close to that. And, uh, and so we'll see. Hopefully, we'll be able to come together. So um, I don't know if you mentioned it in, when you were talking about the bill, but the bill would start a federal registry of police misconduct and require states to report use of force to the U.S. Justice Department. I have a question, a, a question here from John Murphy um, from Pennsylvania, who wanted to know, when will the House lift the funding ban on gun violence research? Is that anywhere in here or a part of the discussion? No, 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 it's not. Um, we don't deal with that in this particular bill. However, we did deal with it in, er in earlier legislation, though. Okay. And you were just talking about how you are, you are, you've heard from House uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, your fellow congress, congressman from, from California, 
but no other House Republicans have, have been in touch, have signed on as... as no, 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 no. Um, we don't have any Republican co-sponsors right now. I've been in conversations with lots of Republicans, and uh, either one-on-one -on -one or in, uh, in group chats, and we've been talking about it. You know, a couple of my uh, colleagues were former law enforcement officers, or their children were law enforcement officers. And so a couple of things that they feel very strongly about is the training, is the National Registry. I mean, fr from my point of view, uh, I think that this is a bill that really supports police departments, because I don't believe that any police officer wants to work next to somebody who they know is abusing the public or who is corrupt. But police culture doesn't really allow for them to intervene. You saw the 75-year-old man who was knocked down. Now, the police later reported that he tripped, and he did not. He was pushed. But if you remember in that, in that uh, video, uh, one of the officers went back to render aid, and another officer pulled him away, because that is the culture. Or if you saw the videotape of the young man that drowned, and the police officer went to help him, and another officer pulled him away and essentially allowed the young man to drown. So it's that kind of culture that we want to get at. And if you think about the, if you think about police, I mean, that is the one profession that can kill. And you would think that a profession with that power would be accredited. I mean, if you, your hairstylist is accredited, doctors, lawyers, I mean, a lot of professions are. So why shouldn't the police departments be accredited? And that's where I have found the most support from police unions and the Fraternal Order of Police, the um, National Association of Police Chiefs. We've all been in conversation uh, with each other. Um, you know, part of the conversation here when it comes to talking about police reform, obviously the big mantra, the three-word mantra, defund the police. Yes. And part of the conversation has now become, uh, don't take it literally, everyone has a different interpretation of what that means. You are, you've said already that you're against, quote-unquote, defunding the police. Right. But what, what, is your, what is your definition? What's a better alternative? Well, I, and, and I told um, some friends uh, that that's probably one of the worst slogans ever. But anyway, uh, you know, police officers are the first ones to say that they are law enforcement officers. They're not social workers. What we have done in our country is we have not invested in health, social, and economic problems in communities. And we leave the police to pick up the pieces. So in my city, for example, on any given night, we have over 40,000 people who are homeless. Why should the police be involved with that? You know, if you're talking about a substance abuse issue, if you're talking about a person with intellectual challenges, you know, why should police officers have to clean up society's problems? So one of the main points that I believe the quote-unquote defund movement is making is that cities and states, their priorities are lopsided. So a large percentage of the city budget goes to law enforcement. They're saying, why doesn't the city deal with its social problems so not so much money would have to go to law enforcement? And, and you know, within the bill, now we do have a grant program where communities, community-based organizations can apply to uh, come up with innovative solutions or strategies about law enforcement in their particular communities. Now, you mentioned your city, which is Los Angeles, so I want to talk to you about Seattle. This weekend, Republicans have been targeting the autonomous uh, protest zone in Seattle and asking if this, what's, if this is what citizens want in their cities. What do you, what do you think of that? 
Well, I mean, I think that it's sacri- a Seattle plant doing that, I think, is okay. But, you know, seriously, a city can't run that way. If you have a small corner of the city that chooses to do that. But I do believe the mayor and the chief of police, as I've heard them on the news, um, certainly know and see that that autonomous zone will last for a very short period of time. So if a neighborhood wants to experiment with that, I think that's fine. But you can't run a city without making sure that everybody in the city is safe. And although I'm a big proponent of the budgets being better and that uh, of society investing, you do need police. You do need to, someone to help. But I think that what we have done over time is we've divested in so much of the safety net that then we leave the police in a very unfair position. And you know, one of the main reasons why police get in conflicts, physical conflicts that have terrible results is because they're interacting with people who have mental illness or particular challenges. It's not fair. You know, let's talk about about President Trump. So with regard to Seattle, he has called the folks there, uh, he's called them, quote, ugly anarchists. And he implied he would move in um, sort of in the way that he threatened to do a couple of weeks ago um, during a lot of the a lot of the protests um, over the killing of George Floyd. What's your view? And is this helping or hurting your bill getting passed? Well, honestly, I don't know that any of us are paying attention to him in terms of getting the bill passed, that we're working on the bill. And and I, I do not see my Republican colleagues uh, repeating that. I think my Republican colleagues are looking for a constructive path. So right now, I think it's best to ignore him. Now, what concerns me, though, is that, you know, he's notorious for fanning the flames. I mean, he's getting ready to give a speech on race. And, you know, I don't know what good can come of that because I don't know what he could say that would be positive. And I know that speech, or at least I hear, it's being written by Stephen Miller. And so what is that going to bring us except for an anti-immigrant message? And what I guess he's going to do is talk about African-Americans and all the wonderful things he's done for us and then try to pit us against immigrants. I want to come back to to President Trump in Tulsa um, uh, in a second. But have you heard, as a, as a result of putting together and working on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, have you had any communications with the White House? Yes, yes. And I do believe that there are people there who want to see a, a solution. And so there's a variety of different po- proposals that are out there. And so we'll see where we land. But I have spoken to them. Okay, so now President Trump and Tulsa, and you did a great preview of what you think he might say in that speech, which was originally scheduled for Juneteenth, but moved it to June 20th. Uh, And you have a clear view into what the president might say, because you were one of the delegation from the CBC before you were were chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus to go to the White House to meet with President Trump. Um, You all walked in with a... I'll call it a black agenda, but what you thought the president, what the president should focus on, talk about that meeting and talk about what progress, if any, has been made on that list of things that you handed to the president. Sure. Well, if you remember, the origin of that meeting was when he was asked uh, by a reporter if he had contacted the CDC. Oh, right. Ryan, yes. Right. And so we went 
And um, we remember he, what he said during his campaign is, what do you have to lose? So we did a document, about a 120-page document, that said, you know, first of all, we began with black history, but then we also had a variety of bills that we wanted to see if the White House was going to be interested in. And then we wanted to follow up the meeting, meeting with cabinet secretaries. But I will tell you that uh, after that meeting, there was no communication. They never responded to us after that. We made numerous requests to meet with various uh, cabinet secretaries, and that never happened. Wow. Um, do you think the president, by choosing his first rally, um, you know, after the, the quarantine of coronavirus, his first rally in Tulsa, site of the Tulsa, the Tulsa massacre, do you think he's dog whistling, or do you think he's just pulling out a straight on, a straight on bullhorn to send a message, a, a white supremacist message, to some of his followers? Well, it's very hard for me not to see that as a bullhorn. I mean, it, it just is, because I do know in the beginning, maybe they didn't understand the significance of June 19th, uh, but it was quickly pointed out, and they were going to continue. It wasn't until there was tremendous pushback that they decided uh, you know, to change the date. All right, let me, I, before, before I forget, I want to bring up something that we're reporting in the Washington Post today about what happened in Lafayette Square when the president pushed back, or had protesters push back from Lafayette Square right. so you could go to St. Right. John's for that, uh, the, that photo op. Uh, the, the Post is reporting um, more of the details of the planning and the execution. And uh, law enforcement personnel from the Secret Service um, Park Police, National Guard, um, we're now learning there were guards from a U.S. penitentiary in Hazleton, uh, West Virginia, who were there. Um, is Congress going to investigate, yes. why, uh, investigate this? And could you talk about why it's troubling that, US, that federal penitentiary uh, officers were involved in what happened in Lafayette Square? Well, first of, first of all, Congress is going to investigate. That's not a, a committee that I serve on, but it will be the Oversight Committee. And I know that they are planning a hearing about it. You know, what I think was actually even worse uh, was the fact that people did not know who those folks were. I mean, there were a lot of law enforcement officers there who had no identification whatsoever. You didn't know if they were law enforcement or if they were a rogue militia. So that is a very, very scary thing. So why they would bring them in, I have no idea. They had the National Guard. I, I don't know why they needed to bring uh, anyone else in. So that's very frightening. One of the other things to whip us, right, whip us back to Tulsa, but to talk about coronavirus, um, one of the things that we also know is that Tulsa officials um, are, have been pleading, you know, don't, please, don't, please don't come here. Right. With this rally, is the United States opening up? Are states opening up too soon? And is that putting, is certainly putting the American population at risk? But talk about what this means for African Americans who have borne the brunt of this, of this pandemic in well, this let me, let me just say, you know, Jonathan, what I really think is going on is that I think that the administration is not being public about this. But I think they're adopting a herd immunity standard. And you know, herd immunity means just let everybody get exposed. You know, what we used to do years ago with chickenpox. You know, when you had a child, you would intentionally expose them so they could go ahead and just get the virus. And I think that that is the policy 
that the administration has adopted. And uh, with herd immunity, that is, is very, very frightening because they're not actually saying that. We know that the death rate has been extremely disproportionate amongst African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and Pacific Islanders, depending on, on where you are. And so uh, you have heard the president on several occasions say, well, you know, the people that are getting sick are people who are older, people who have a lot of other health conditions. It is, it is shocking and so tragic to me that he doesn't seem to be able to muster any empathy at losing over 100,000 Americans are dead in the last three months. I mean, it's, you kind of have to say that a couple of times to let that register. And with a new report out of Harvard um, predicting that we could have another 100,000 dead um, by, by the end of the summer, you know, emails revealed in a lawsuit last week um, include emails showing the politicization of the, of the CDC responses after the president was upset when their top, doc, top doctors were saying the coronavirus will spread in, fe in February. But what can you and Congress do to assure the American people that the health information from the CDC is not tainted? Well, not only not tainted, uh, we're trying to get the health information. One of the things that we passed when we passed the CARES Act you know, from the Congressional Black Caucus perspective, we've been very concerned about this disproportionate death rate and believe that there needs to be a specific intervention in communities where there is the disproportionate death rate. The problem is, where do you intervene if you don't have the data to know where the intervention is needed? And so we did pass uh, legislation that required the CDC to come forward with some of the demographic uh, information within 21 days and the head of the CDC had to publicly apologize for the report that they submitted because it basically had no information. Congresswoman, how damaging would it be if the United States had to lock down, um, have everyone stay at home and, and shut down the economy again? Well, it would be very damaging, very devastating. But, you know, um, again, over 100,000 people we have lost. This, we need to do something extreme. And here you have the, the United States, the most developed, richest country in the world, and we never got a handle on this in the beginning, which is why it's so bad. Now, you know, one of the things that happened in the Obama administration was we faced a potential pandemic then with Ebola. What did Obama do? He mobilized the entire world, and Ebola didn't even spread in Africa. It settled in three countries. The World Health Organization predicted a million people would die, 11,000 people die. I was on the phone last week with the ambassador to India. India, 1.6 billion people. They've had 6,000 people die. And so there is no reason except for the fact that this pandemic was handled inappropriately from the very beginning. It ballooned and we've never been able to get back control over it. Congresswoman, I can't. I, we're we're running out of time, but I can't let you go without talking without talking politics. We're sure. in a presidential election election season. Uh, Vice President Biden um, is the presumptive Democratic nominee. Um, who do you think he should pick for vice president? Should it, he says he's going to nominate a woman? Should it be a black woman? Well, I am very excited that he made the commitment to hire a woman, and of course, I want it to be a black woman. And I think at this time in our country, 
where you have such an awareness. I mean, the majority of the people out on the streets in some cities are majority white. And I get excited by seeing them wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts. So I think that a black woman would not just galvanize uh, the black community, but I think it would galvanize this new movement that's out there. So I'm, I'm excited, period. I'm doing the countdown. And I said at the beginning of the year, if we didn't fix this in November, we were going to have to pay for the next two generations. Now I think it's a matter of life and death. Uh, Congresswoman, do you, what do you say to people who say Vice President Biden has to choose between uh, someone who can help him win the Midwest and someone who can um, help him with enthusiasm among African Americans? Are those two things mutually exclusive? Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. And I think that the vice president needs to pick somebody that he is comfortable with who can help him lead the nation. Um, there are a lot of names. There have been three stories in the last three days about what's happening with the vice presidential search um, it, when it comes to the African-American women who are being looked at, uh, Congresswoman Val Demings, um, Senator, Senator Kamala Harris, yes. uh, Ambassador Susan Rice, um, uh, Stacey Abrams' name oh. not, has not been in those stories, but the stories also point out that there might be other people who are being looked at who mm -hmm. aren't being talked about. And my question to you, Madam Chairwoman, mm -hmm. have you been contacted by anyone from the Biden campaign to talk about VP? Uh, <laughs> you, no. to be clear, well, you. Let me, let me just tell you that uh, I have been really honored that I've heard my name come up in the last uh, few days, but the answer is no. Okay, and it's not an unreasonable question because, yes, you're the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus. You've been in Congress now for, you said your fifth term? Ten now? years. Ten, yeah, I'm in my tenth year in Congress. Ten yep. years, but also you were the speaker of the California Assembly when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. The, the economy had imploded. So it's understandable that people would look to say, hey, what about Karen Bapp? If, if they were to call you, would you take the call? Would you even be interested? Of course I would take the call, and I would be extremely honored. Are you kidding? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I got to gotta ask. I don't know if you wanted me to ask, but I had to, I had to ask. Congresswoman Karen Bass, California, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.